We're talking about elephants in the family this month, and over the next couple of weeks, when you come into Echo, we're going to have some elephants hidden around the building with gift cards on them. If you find them, you get to keep them, but uh, just want to remind you, there are elephants in the room, and we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about them uh, this month, put this little guy over here for now, but we're going to dive right into it this morning. We are starting a brand new teaching series. We're going to leave that graphic up on the screen just for a moment. It's called Family Life. Now, I want to just cue you into something. We all have a family. Might be the family that's living under your roof with you right now, and that might just be one of you. But we all have a family. Some of us love our family. Others of us would rather not think about our family, especially on Sunday morning. But we all have a family. But you know we all have elephants, too. We all have elephants. So in this series... There's kind of one central question that I'm going to ask every week that we're going to be asking. And the central question is is simply this. Imagine what God could do if we would just muster the courage to be candid and courageous, to be honest about what's really going on in our family. Imagine what God could do, what he would do, what he wants to do. If you and I would just be completely honest, and you could kind of stop the whole thought right there and put a question mark. Imagine what God could do if you'd just be honest with him. Imagine what God could do if you would just be honest with yourself about what's really going on in your life, specifically in our families. And we've heard a lot about um, dysfunctional families. And, you know, kind of where we came up with this idea here is... uh, (laughs) You know, you've got the, I don't know if you, have you seen the bumper stickers with the stick figure families? I don't know if you've seen them. You know, they've got the, the stick figure mommy or the stick figure daddy, and then you put a couple stick figure kids. And what do they always put at the end of the family? They put the pets, right? The reality is, though, guys, and, and that's kind of the, behind the graphic here, I'm afraid that many of us have welcomed things into our family that didn't belong there. We've welcomed these elephants into our family, and we've allowed them to stay as the family pet. And I'm just wondering what God could do in our lives if we just get honest about the elephants in our family. So in your notes, the big idea for today, kind of as we're launching this whole series, and I will be honest with you, which is probably a good thing. I don't know why I say that. You know, I hope you think I'm being honest with you all the time. But I want to be very transparent with you. There is, I don't want to say, there's not a, it's not an unholy nervousness, but there's a little bit of a, of a sobering reality to me about any time that you take a series like this, which I've never taught this particular angle on family before i recognize and i'm very well aware of what's at stake and what i might be opening up when we talk about this and but you know at the same time we need to talk about family god cares more about family than we think every single analogy he makes in scripture for us to try and understand him has to do with family he's our dad jesus is the groom we're the bride in fact, and I'm going to say this multiple times, you realize, you know, the Bible says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Do you know the most powerful evangelistic image he's given to human beings to reach an unbelieving world, according to the New Testament, is the relationship between a husband and a wife. He says the unbelieving world should be able to look at the way that husbands, that Christian husbands treat their wives and Christian wives treat their husband and find some type of connection between the love that God has for us. And I'm wondering if any of our marriages are healthy enough for people to look at that and find Jesus. That's how important God thinks family is. And when you think of the context of of family through Scripture, you can start to understand why God has some of these statements and facts and feelings that he does about family. Here's the big idea. The big idea is that our family becomes dysfunctional 
when we pretend the problems we have in our family don't really exist. That's the big idea. The big idea is that, oh, I like the elephant. That's cool, Julie. Good. I like that. The big idea is that our family becomes dysfunctional when we pretend the problems we have in our family don't really exist. Now, some of us label our families dysfunctional unfairly, and others of us probably need to own up to a little more of the dysfunction in our families. Problems be- our family becomes dysfunctional when? When we pretend that the stuff that's actually going on that are problems, we just kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. We just pretend that everything is good, that it's all fine, when really it isn't. When we're not fine living a single life, when we're not fine in the marriage that we're in, when we're not fine with our kids. And what is family life? Family life is just very, very, very just daily. That's what family is. Family is just what goes on daily. Like for us, like for Kendra and Chase and I, family life is daily. And Sundays is a different day for us. It's getting my son up two hours earlier than he usually does. I have a son that's going to be two this week. And those of you that have been there or are there, you know when you disrupt their schedule, you pay for it for like a week. And it's daily. And I would like to tell you that when your pastor gets out of the car with his family on Sunday morning, it's all well and good. We're usually exhausted. Our day starts at 5 o'clock Sunday morning to get here by 8. And our son has usually screamed most of that time because he doesn't want to be up. And we get here and we get out of the car. And everybody, how are you doing, Pastor? You know what I say? Fine. (laughs) Fine. You know the little stick figure family? That's how it kind of was. You know, I grew up in a pastor's home and we knew. We would fight like cats and dogs at home. But when company was coming over, you had to snap to it. And the tears had to dry up. And they walked in. How are you doing? Oh, we're fine. Y'all do it too. You fight like cats and dogs. Some of you drive in here by yourself when you had an argument with yourself on the way in in the morning. And I can tell when you get out of your car and you walk up to the door and I ask you how you're doing and you lie to your pastor and you say, I'm fine. All the time. Man, it's really coming out already. You feel safe. We're getting candid and courageous. <laughs> Why do we do that? Why do we do that? You know, I understand we don't want to get out and just vomit all of our stuff all over people all the time. I get that. You know, but there's something unhealthy to that too where we feel like we have to pretend. Do you think we serve a God who encourages us to pretend? Do you think that's helpful? I don't think so. So we're going to drill down to some of this, this series. You know, the truth of the matter, you could say that big idea in another way. You know, you could say it that it, we, you know, family becomes dysfunctional when we pretend the problems we have in our family don't really exist. Or you could say it this way, there's an elephant in the room, but he's simply become the family pet. There's an elephant in the room. We're going to let him be the family pet. I want you to draw some, some, maybe some comfort from some of this. I don't want to be too heavy on it because you know King David in the Old Testament? King David allowed elephants into his family. King David allowed, it wasn't always that way, but he, he, he allowed the elephants into his family to become the family pet and he's not alone. We do the same thing. You know something about, some of you have pets. We did for a while, and then when we moved back to Maryland, I said, I'm done with pets for a while. I'll just go with a kid. You know, that'll, uh, we, had, we had pets for a little while. Elephants don't make good pets. I don't know if you've ever tried to have an elephant as a pet. Try and keep them in your two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> elephants are stinky. Elephants make a mess. They're loud. They undermine. They destroy stuff. They trample on things. Elephants make horrible pets. They will cost you more than any other pet. Imagine feeding one of those guys, but we do. We think that they'll stay in the back room and no one will know. Trust me, your neighbors know you've got pet elephants around. You might think you're doing a good job controlling and keeping your elephant quiet, but the people closest to you, they know you've got an elephant. 
So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look in the life of David. We're going to extract some lessons, some tough lessons that he learned. We're going to look in the life of Paul a little bit later on. Uh, but let's look at David real quickly. For those of you who may have never heard of this guy before, I just want you to remember something. Sometimes we lift up and we deify and we make the characters in the Bible like they were the fourth members of the Trinity. David was a human being. He didn't walk around with a halo on his head and angels walking around. He was a, he was a man that was born and he was not perfect. He was not holy. But he was a man, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. And he probably knew the tangible effects of God's favor more than anybody else. Let me give you a quick brief overview. There's not, you know, just really, really, really quick so you understand. There are kind of four seasons in David's life. and You can break them down by ages. From birth to age 17, David lived a lot of life as a child and a teenager. During that time, he, he, tracked, down, he tracked down a lion that still stole one of his sheep and he ripped the mouth open and he, um, he killed the lion with his bare hands. He killed a bear. He killed Goliath and he was anointed king. That was a pretty active child and teenage year and God's favor was on him. Then from age 17 to 30, he was kind of transitioning between families and God was still promoting him and using him. He was kind of in that point where he was coming into his adult life. He was no longer really attached to his nuclear family and he was kind of part of Saul's family for a while and then was on the run because he was a threat to the king. But God favored him so that by the time in that third season of his life, when he turned 30, from age 30 to 37, he became king, not over all of Israel, but part of it. And it was an awesome season of his life. At age 30, he was the king. He had six sons who he loved with all his heart during that time period, and God favored him. And then you have age uh, 37 to age 70, and he was king over all of Israel. He was so incredibly successful as king. When you look at some of the, the battles and the nations that he conquered, I mean, he, he, you, know, he, you read stories about where he slayed 22,000 people in another nation, and that other nation walked in so much reverence and fear of David, they brought him money and gifts just to keep him happy. And if you look over David's life as a panoramic view, you'd see season after season after season of God's blessing and favor. But can I tell you something? There was a season in there where he started pretending. And he led an elephant into his family. And it cost him more than he ever thought that it would cost him because he decided to pretend. He thought that maybe God would just overlook the sin and the dysfunction in his life. And we do the same thing. As if God doesn't know the sin you're trying to hide. As if God doesn't recognize the dysfunction. As if God doesn't know what's really underneath your silence or your narcissism or your bitterness or your sniping at one another or your family or your comparing. As if God doesn't see that and as if God doesn't know what's underneath there. There came a season for David when he learned some painful lessons. And I'm going to take a look at uh, just a brief look this morning at a few of those lessons that he had. Um, Number one in your notes. Here's one of the first things that David learned and that we need to kind of wrap our minds around this morning. Number one, pretending kills family life pretending will kill your family life acting as though things aren't that really are or acting as though things are when they really aren't that's pretending and pretending is what killed david's family life let me read to you something real quick second samuel chapter 12 verses 7 through 9 the lord of the lord the god of israel says i anointed you king of israel he's talking to david And I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I gave you the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? This is what God says to David when David stopped, refused to deal with his elephant and refused to deal with his elephant, refused to deal with his elephant. He had times to deal with his secret issues privately and he refused to do it. And God finally said, Do you remember all that I've done for you? And I would have done much, much, much more. Why did you decide to start pretending? Why did you start to pretend that you were holy and right when at home things were very, 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 very 
very out of order. Now, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. As we kind of walk along some of these points, I'm going to invite you into a real-life story that aired on ESPN not too long ago. Now, we've edited it down some. But it's a story of a real-life human being who had an elephant in his family that he chose not to deal with for a long time. At one time, he was the uh, most well-known high school football coach in the country. In fact, MTV made a, uh, a documentary out of his life. It had a series that was on for two years. Then all of a sudden we stopped hearing about this guy, and this story kind of picks up where it left off. I want you to listen in, in this first couple minutes, for the elephants in the life of Coach Rush Probst. It's only a couple minutes long, but I want you to listen in very carefully, and then we're going to come back and talk about this and kind of bring some teaching together from the Bible and then how this plays out in real life. Julie, if you'd go ahead and roll that first clip for us. There was a time when Rush Probst seemed unstoppable. A five-time state champion and the popular polarizing personality behind the MTV reality show, Two-A-Days. It took him from being the best-known high school football coach in Alabama to being one of the best-known coaches in the country. Because all you guys, you think you scholarship worthy? You know who holds that key? Who do you think holds that key? Being me. He was just someone who was arrogant. And I think the word prick pretty accurately described him. You beat the piss out of him. I'm talking about beat the piss out of him. I could see this uh, heading toward an epic train wreck. I hear people say all the time, I have no regrets. Well, I mean, I've, good luck. Because I got a million of them. January 1999, just outside Birmingham, Alabama, Hoover High School hires 41-year-old Rush Probst to turn around its scuffling football program. It's a great challenge. Uh, stated, I think it's the greatest coaching job in the state of Alabama. I really believe deep down if Stephanie hadn't have been there that I probably wouldn't have taken that job. Stephanie Duck, Probst's 29-year-old girlfriend, lived just 40 minutes from Hoover High School. I was immediately attracted to him, just because, I mean, I guess his personality, he's very charismatic. Oh, he's arrogant, <laughs> which is what most people think of him. The first time I met her, it was just different. She was bright, personality bubbling. The time that we spent together, I mean, we just, we wanted to be together, so it didn't matter about anything else. But there was something else. Rush Probst was already married. Nine years before arriving at Hoover in 1990, he wed his high school girlfriend, Tammy Cox. Rush and his wife, Tammy, who declined our request for an on-camera interview, have three children. At the height of his success, here's a guy who had his dream job, lots of success. Television show, he had players. You saw one of them in there. Julio Jones is now wide receiver with the Atlanta Falcons. At the height of his success, he had a massive elephant in his life. And what he learned and what King David also learned was that no matter how successful you are, that does not remove the power of an elephant if you let into your life. 
And you heard him say, you heard the, the, the radio personality in there and say, I saw this thing headed for an epic train wreck. You heard Rush say, I hear people say all the time, no regrets. And he says, good luck with that because I've got a million of them. There's a guy looking back at a season of his life where he lets some elephants in. We're going to play that out in a few minutes. But I just want you to know something, that just because you see seasons of favor and success in your life, that's not enough to cover over the power of these secrets that we let into our private lives, that we let into our, into our families. What if you would have sat David down when he was 30 years old before that he decided to have an affair with a wife, that he, with a lady that he wasn't married to when he decided to sleep with another man's wife? What if he would have sat David down when he was 30 before he let this elephant in his life and said, David... I know things are good for you right now, but I need you to listen to me very clear. There's going to come a season in your life where you're going to start pretending. There's going to come a season in your life where you're going to sleep with another man's wife. And you're going to use your power and your narcissism to try and cover it up and rationalize and justify and make sure that it's okay. And David, it's going to affect you in the worst possible way. You're, it's good. This dysfunction is going to affect your whole family. Your kids will not be able to deal with this. It's going to ruin your kids' lives down the road to the point where one of your sons that you love is going to die. Another one of your sons is going to be so messed up by this dysfunction, he's going to turn the sword on the other brother. Your family is going to be wrecked by all this for future because of a choice. You're going to, you know what David would say? He'd say, you're nuts. That'll never happen to me. And that's probably the way a lot of you are sitting here this morning saying, you know what, Pastor, I don't need this series. We're good. I'm good. I wish. I wish I would have been in a place where 14 years ago before I did stupid things and opened up the door to silliness and craziness and sin in my own life that nearly cost me my family, my career, and everything else. I wish someone would have sat me down and looked me in the eyes and said, I know you don't think that you're ever going to do something stupid and open your heart to sin, but you will, and you better stop, and you better sober up, and you better listen. Of course, the truth is, I don't know if I would have listened to it. I was just that arrogant to think that God and I had this special deal that I could just pretend. Pretending kills families David would have said no way that'll never happen to me but it did and it can happen to you and maybe it already has maybe you've already bought into the two lies that every pet elephant whispers to its owner (laughs) maybe you like King David or like Coach Rush have embraced the two lies every personal secret stamps into your soul there's two lies that you have to buy into at least one of them if you're going to keep a pet elephant around and here they are there's two lies we all believe about our pet elephants in your notes first lie is I can control it And second lie is, in time, it'll just work itself out. The reason that we accept problems into our family, pretend that they're not problems, the bargain we make with ourselves and with God, the real pretense we get involved with is we either say, I can control this, or you know what, I'm going to just give it some time, and this thing will just eventually work itself out. My kid will grow out of it. I'll find the person that completes me. I'll have that tough conversation with my parents, or I can control this. I can keep it in the back room when no one else is around and then when it's safe, I can open the door and let it out and and deal with it and then I can put it back. I can control this. That's what David thought. David was just that powerful and had rationalized just enough that he thought he could control this. But here's here's what God said to him through the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12. Here's what he says. Here's what the prophet says to David. You did this secretly, but I, God, will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Here's what God's saying. David, you thought that you could keep that elephant in the back room and I dealt with it for a while, but I can't anymore. And now I have to because you've ignored everything else. The only thing I know left to get your attention is to expose and reveal this to everybody. Now, for whatever reason, God doesn't usually start by revealing it publicly. Sometimes he does. If you follow the pattern of scripture, typically God gives us multiple opportunities. Here's something I want you to remember. 
Here's the reality about dealing with elephants. You've got two options. Option number one is you can deal with the elephant now on God's terms at a time of your choosing. Option number two is your elephant will deal with you later on God's terms at a time that's totally out of your control. If you're keeping a pet elephant, just know there will come a day you will have to deal with that elephant. He will bust out of that back room at a time that you're not prepared for it. Or you can say, I'm going to do it now at a time of my choosing. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to find grace from God to walk through. So I'm going to make that elephant leave so I can deal with the problem that he left. Or you can just say, I'm going to cry and control it or keep it a secret. Or maybe just in time that elephant will use his trunk and open the door and he'll just walk away and it'll just resolve itself. And no one will be any more the wiser. Here's how God usually deals with us. Usually, he deals with us privately for something the Bible calls conviction. This awareness, this discomfort you feel, whether it's in your conscience, in your spirit, in your thoughts, you just feel that kind of hesitancy that something is wrong. But the Bible also says you can ignore that if you want to. In fact, the more that you ignore it, the more almost like a callous that your conscience builds up to the point where you can be involved in all this kind of secret stuff and not feel anything bad about it at all. And then typically what God does is he sends you a messenger. Whether it's through a sermon, whether it's through somebody just snooping around, whether it's through somebody that you trust speaking in your life, maybe asking you a direction, uh, a question. Hey, how are things going on at home? I saw you and your, you and your wife just don't seem happy. How is everything? Oh, everything's fine. Really? But then God, out of his love for us, at some point comes to the point where he has to deal with it publicly. David had plenty of opportunities to deal with his elephants. But instead, he pretended with God, he pretended with himself. He became so corrupted by his own power, success, and favor that he believed he could simply control it. So you know what he did? He went up to the roof one day, and he looked down at somebody in the kingdom taking a bath. He had a lust problem. Probably one of the first men in Scripture we see who really struggled with pornography. And because he had enough power, he said, I want her, but she doesn't belong to me, so I would just send for her. He sent for her, he slept with her, he had sex with her, and then he was stuck because he knew he did something wrong. And rather than confessing and deal with it right then, he said, you know what? I have a way that I can control this and make it right. She doesn't belong to me because she's married, but if her husband died and she was widowed, then I could have her. So he sends word. Her husband was a soldier. David uses his power as the king to say, hey, put that guy on the front, put her husband on the front lines. Well, why? Just put him on the front lines. Well, he knew he'd get wiped out and he did. And then he took her in as his own and made this deal with God. And then Nathan comes to him, the prophet of God, and says, you've done a bad thing and God knows it. And you did this secretly. But God's going to deal with it open. He rationalized. He covered up. He had a second full-time job beyond being king of just protecting his elephant. (laughs) Can you imagine the time, the effort, the bargaining, and the resources that David had to put into controlling the elephant? Have you ever tried to control an elephant? Do you know how time-consuming it is to cover up a secret? And typically, those elephants elephants like to procreate. You have to have another little elephant to go in there and protect that elephant, and they make babies. You've got all kinds of elephants running around. And the more elephants that you have, the more difficult it is to keep them in the back room. Coach Rush bought into both of these lies wholeheartedly. And I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to listen. There's another short clip, about 2 minutes and 16 seconds long. You will hear both of these lies. I want you to listen for them. They're pretty clear. I want you to listen to the two of these lies come out in this clip. Go ahead, Julie. Rush's wife attended nearly all of her husband's games. She did not know that a few sections away sat the other woman. After every game, Rush would find Stephanie in the stands and point to her. They would meet in parking lots just to say hello and have dinner with friends but leave in separate cars. I think Stephanie knew from day one that what our 
role was. I mean, she knew that I was eventually going to move on and that we were going to start and have a life together. Well, in his controlling ways, he, we, he, it made sense what he would say, you know, let's just wait until we can get through this, you know, and then, then we will have our time. Probst had his time on the football field. Go out and kick their ass on national TV. Let's go. I apologize for that. I do apologize for that language. I want you to understand the context of what's going on here. He said, he said, uh, there's going to come a time. We can have our time. In time, this will just all work out. In time, I'll leave my wife. In time, in time, we can get together. In time, it's going to happen. And then she says, well, in his controlling ways, he made all these promises to me. It's the same deal that we all cut. It's the same bargain we all make. It's the same pact. And we decide to keep an elephant around. We just say, well, I can control it for a while. I can keep it quiet for a while. I can throw people off the trail. They don't need to know what happened between dad and I. They don't need to know that I live in a strange relationship with my parents. They don't need to know how miserable I am with myself at home. It'll just work itself out in time. But ultimately, the prophet delivers a message to David too. And he says, you know, you've done this in secret for a while. You've kept the elephant secret. But now you're about to be publicly exposed. So David's scandal, David's scandal broke at a time and a scale beyond his control. The same thing happened. The same thing happened to Coach Rush. The same thing happened to him at the height of all things great. Right after they had won a second consecutive national championship, the elephant got too big for him to control, and it started wreaking havoc in his life and in multiple families. Let's let's take a last look at how this all panned out for him. In 2005, MTV's cameras captured Probst winning an unprecedented fourth straight title. Rush Probst, like him or loathing, is one heck of a high school football coach. I really felt like he was the, the third college team in the state behind Auburn, Alabama. He had grown that important. Behind the scenes, while still married, Rush and his girlfriend Stephanie had two more children. I mean, he would just hold them when he had time, which wasn't very much. I mean, it would be late at night, or he might come by for lunch or something. When you were going through all this at Hoover, what is it like having two families? You know, just no different than just having one. It was crazy how we ever thought that was ever going to work, and you're just trying to keep it all together. Do you feel like at times that you're a little bit of a phony? Yeah, I did. I, I faced that guilt several times that I felt that way. I remember asking this question, how did you get yourself in this situation? I mean, I bet I asked myself that hundreds of times. You know, why, 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 why? I knew that they were gonna, it was going to crash and burn. I just I didn't know when. In early 2007, Rush interviewed for his dream job to work for Nick Saban at Alabama. Saban asked Propes if the rumors of his affair were true. Propes told him they were, and the job was gone. I called him one day, and I said, Rush, there, there are vicious, vile stories making the rounds about you. And he, he said, Paul, that, that's a bunch of crap. And I hung up, I knew he was lying. That summer, 
a newspaper reporter broke the news on Paul Feinbaum's radio show. And he began telling the, the story. This was a lie of epic proportions. This was someone who had a dual life. So all of a sudden, it, it was like a bomb going off. What was it like when you talked to Tammy for the first time? She asked me. I think she knew. But to really be honest with you, we were not talking at the time a lot. I would not tell her anything. I would just... Why wouldn't you tell her? Didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to deal with it. And, you know, before we pile on to, to rush, it's a kind of a common thread that runs through a, a lot of us human beings. There's just some stuff we just don't want to deal with. There's some real things going on that we're struggling with. They've become, they've grown to the to the size of an elephant. We pretend like they're not there. We try and put them in the back room. We don't let God or human beings or anybody else around there. We spend all our time, we spend more energy trying to cover up and pretend that it's not what it is than it would take to just unpack it and uncover it and ask God's grace to come in our life and help us acknowledge it and deal with it. He said it, it was crazy how we thought that this would ever work, but that's just what happens when you start pretending you fool yourself first and then you fool everybody else. And sometimes the things we're covering up are sinful things like what David did. And then sometimes the things that we're covering up, they're not, they're not sin issues. They're just elephants. They're these big, huge things that are going on that are really problems we just don't want to deal with. And, and Rush didn't deal with it. And it came to a point where it broke. The scandal was out there. The news was out there. And with David, he let a struggle that he had with lust and power and greed and control get out of control. And then he tried to use control to keep it in place. And it didn't work for him. One elephant generally leads to another elephant. And what in the world do you do then? And that's the challenge to us this morning in the teaching series. So let me turn this to a positive direction. So what do we do with this? And where are we going these next couple of weeks? Number three in your notes. Here's the challenge. The challenge before us is to, to be an elephant-free family, not a problem-free family. The challenge before us is to be an elephant-free family, not a problem-free family. Here's what, here's what happened with David. Here's David's reaction when the prophet Nathan said, God's going to deal with you about this. It's all going to hit. The scandal's going to be out there. And here's what David says. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, he writes about it in other places. David does. I've sinned against the Lord and against the Lord only have I sinned. And Nathan replies, yes, in these beautiful words, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. But then there's this verse that we wish wasn't in there, but I have to include it for context. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Let me just make this statement. Problem-free families don't exist. Problem-free families don't exist. If you've got problems in your family, there is a clinical word for your family. Normal. <laughs> Problem-free families don't exist, and I don't want you to hear me saying that the goal of this series is for you to come for the next three weeks, take your notes, fill in the blanks, pray a few prayers, and you'll have no problems in your family for the rest of your life. Absolutely not. The message of the Bible isn't come to God and your life becomes problem-free. It's come to God and you've got access to the one who can give you grace to acknowledge and deal with and get healing from all of your problems. That's the message of the Bible. 
healthy families and fit families have problems, but they acknowledge them and they deal with them. Dysfunctional families are unhealthy. They're the families that deny, that pretend, that cover up. So this is about being a fit, functional, healthy family, not being a problem-free family. And I want you to watch just This is the last clip. It's a minute and 20 seconds long. I want you to watch carefully one last part of Coach Rush's story. Like David, Rush chose not to deal with the issue, with the problem. So his problem chose to deal with him. And I want you to listen specifically. There's a moment of confession that comes up towards the end of this clip. Last minute of the clip. Check it out. In October, with rumors of the affair, as well as academic violations swirling, Rush decided to come clean. He told his wife, Tammy, everything. He then gathered their three children around the dining room table and confessed to them as well. I was angry. I wanted to come across the table and kill him, to be honest with you. I just always thought that Dad was at work. I remember leaving there that day going, if it could get any worse, please show me how. Basically told us that he loved us, and then he went to practice. The next day, October 30th, 2007, Rush Propes resigned. I am remorseful for what I've done. I have failed you as a community. When you make a deal with the devil, you're going to get bad results. Criticize me for having an affair. Do what you want to do. Be judgmental. It was so out of control. There were so many things out of control. You didn't know what to do. I failed miserably as a person, and I could not fix it. Nobody could. I failed miserably as a person, and I could not fix it. I just want to sit him down and say, Coach Rush, that's autobiographical of every single human being. We all fail miserably, and we can't fix it. I can't fix me, and you can't fix you. But you know what? It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. We have a God, and there's this thing called the grace of God that is available to anybody who's willing to accept it. And that says, I accept you as a person. I don't approve of everything you're doing, but I accept you. And I have grace for you to, to apply to exactly where you are and to cover over all of the things in your life that you're trying to cover over that you can't. And can I tell you, if you will just accept it and stop trying to explain it and rationalize it and justify it, and just, you can, because you can't totally get it, it's not fair. But there is grace of God that can be applied to everything. Here's a man who did make a confession. And the brokenness in my own heart, because I know the end of the story, is that to the best that I know, and I'm not a judge, the best that I know at no point... In fact, if you read, I've read his whole story that he wrote out. He grew up as a man of faith in church. But he walks very distant from God. And I think it's probably a lot of the guilt that goes along with that. But friend, it doesn't have to be where you live your whole life protecting the elephant. You you don't don't have to do that. Because here's the last thing I want to leave with you. How do we become an elephant-free family? By confessing our own elephants. How do you start your way to being an elephant-free family? To living an elephant-free life? By confessing our own elephants. Now, there's two words in there I need to point out to you. Our own. 
What that means is that husbands, the way you start creating an elephant-free marriage and a context for your family is not by confessing the elephants of your spouse and your kids and your parents. Healing always begins with self-confession. Jesus said it a little bit of a different way. He said, before you go around trying to surgically remove a splinter from your friend's eye, Take the two by four out of your own first. Now, I don't want any of my friends doing surgery on my eyes. But if I would be at that point where I need it, I don't want them with a two by four in their eye because it's going to hurt me really bad. Being an elephant-free family starts with healthy confession. Healthy confession, you know what it does? The moment you confess it, the elephant has to leave the room. You still have to deal with the problem. But now the elephant's out of the picture and we can acknowledge and we can deal with and we can have grace for and we can get into a process where God can start working with our problem. But you cannot start getting... Here's the lie we all believe. I can, I can work on my problem and keep the elephant at the same time. It doesn't work that way. The elephant has to leave first. And see, David learned a tough lesson that I had to learn as a kid and I'm learning again as a parent and my son's going to have to learn at some point. Confessing doesn't mean that I get off scot-free. I remember my parents told me, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. But usually, or not usually, there's a lot of times when me telling the truth got me into more trouble than if I had lied. Did you eat that cookie? Mm. <laughs> crumbs coming down my face. Did you eat that cookie? No. Why are there crumbs in your mouth? I don't know, they're not crumbs. You know, just all the... Now you're in trouble twice because you like, okay, I ate the cookie. Okay, thank you for telling the truth. You're still in trouble. But I told the truth. It doesn't matter. Thank you for confessing. You're in less trouble than you would have been had you lied. <laughs> Sometimes we think that just by admitting it, that that should be good enough. Here's what Nathan said to David. Because you confessed, you won't die and God will forgive you. <laughs> That's the biggest thing. If you told me I had a choice between, you know, I would much rather not have to die. You have your choice between some, a little bit of punishment and some learning and some discipline to make sure you don't ever do this again, or death. I'll take the punishment, discipline, consequences, health. I'll take that all day long, the healthiness of that over the, the you know, the, the, the death side of things. What's God really driving at here? If you and I want to get healthy, don't think that just by confessing that means, that, you know, you can go home and say, you know what? Here's something I need to do from time to time. You know, let me give you an example. You know, if I, were, if I had you know, a 90-minute you know, drive around the six miles of the beltway I have to go to get home from work, and it might have been a rough day and this and that thing, sometimes when I come home the door, I'm not in the best frame of mind. And I recognize in me that there's sometimes when I get home and I'm a little bit grouchy, a little bit short, a little bit sharp. And, you know, one day last week I just, you know, I got into it a few minutes and, and my, my wife and my son noticed that I was a little bit off my game. And I just said, you know what, guys? Let's just take a time out here. There's an elephant in the room and I brought it home. And I'm sorry. My attitude stinks. I've been short. I've been sharp. I'm going to go downstairs for a few minutes. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my head straight. And I'm going to come back up in a few minutes and I just want a do-over. Can I have a do-over? I'm so sorry to both of you. Because in our family you get do-overs. And I hope in your family you allow people to have do-overs. You know, but it starts by confessing your own elephants. You just got to come in and say, you know, the other day, uh, Saturday, Kendra and I had a moment. My, my mom came down and 
Kendra and I had a moment to go grocery shopping, and I've really immersed myself into this whole couponing thing, which is dangerous if you like games and saving money in Microsoft Excel spreadsheets. And I also struggle with social anxiety disorder, and so you put me in a brand-new supermarket where they were relabeling all of the shelves on Super Bowl weekend in a time limit with certain amount of coupons and a number I was hoping to get to. Man, I'm telling you, I was in bad shape. I was, I needed some medicine right then and there. I'm trying to manage all of these tensions inside of me, and I'm just like, this is not, I don't know where things are, and it's supposed to be where the label is, and all my controlling tendency was coming. I, I'm not wanting you to have empathy for me. I am a sicko when it comes to that. And, I, and my wife is trying to do, she's in a lose-lose situation, bless her heart, because um, she's recognizing what's going on and she wants to help and she just knows it properly. There's no way to help. It just is going in a, in a bad way really fast. And at one point, I had said something to her. I was like, we need eight of these. Can you just pick out any eight? I'll go on the next one. And I got the thing. I turned around. She was standing there looking at me. I said, why aren't you picking out the eight things? She said, well, I couldn't even hear what you're saying. You're talking out loud to yourself. I don't know whether you're talking to you or to me. I said, can you just please pick out? There's nine yogurts left. Just pick eight of them. Pick the one you don't want. Just put it in the cart. And, of course, it sounds funny now, but that's not the way that a husband should talk to his wife. She didn't say anything. And I knew in that moment I had blown it. And I knew the right thing to do would be stop right there in the middle of the grocery store and apologize. But then this little pride crept in. She said, just wait till we get outside and no one's looking. And then you can... We paid, and as soon as we paid, the total was actually $2 less than I thought that was going to be. And I was kind of smiling. My wife goes, well, are you happy now? <laughs> We got to the pilot, and I put the groceries in, and I just shot it, and we stood right there in the parking lot, and I said, I am so sorry. I took this massive elephant on our grocery trip all around the grocery store, and I disrespected you, and I was impatient with you, and I was more obsessed over getting to a certain number than I was about your feelings, and I am embarrassed. My wife just looked at me, and she said, I forgive you. And she said, and I think that you're going to learn from this. <laughs> And that this won't repeat itself in the sweetest possible way that she could. And you know, that was the most God-honoring response she could have given to me. Because what she didn't say was, you know what, no big deal. Because it was a big deal. And I didn't need to be scot off scot-free from that. I needed, I needed her to feel that she could have permission to tell me, you know what, there, the elephant's gone. There's still a problem here. But I believe because I see sincerity in your heart and I know you're recognizing it. And that's what I need to hear as your wife to make me feel better. Now, I know that I'm opening myself up to all kinds of emails and you're thinking, but look, I need to be real with you. Not to the point where it makes you think less of me, I hope. But where you understand that, you know, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm just impervious to all this stuff and I'm bulletproof. I'm working on this too. I have caused terrible dysfunction in my own family and my own life. And I've been the recipient of a lot of dysfunction in my own family. But I'm just sick and tired of pretending like things don't exist. And I want to be candid and courageous. There's tough conversations I need to have with extended family this year. I am peeling back this own series and peeling back my heart saying, God, please help me to be the kind of person that doesn't cower in fear and tries to walk around having it. I want the elephants to leave. That doesn't mean the problems are going to leave. But I can't even deal with my problems until I just confess that they're there. And I just get candid and courageous. You know what? It's not all rosy and it's not everything all the time. But you know what? We can get there. We can get there by the grace of God. And I hope that maybe that gives you some courage in your own life to say, you know, in this moment right now, I want to be candid. And I want to be courageous. And you might not be ready to be candid and courageous with another human being yet, but I give you full permission in your family to call your elephants what they are, but confess your own. 
Kendra was wise enough or kind enough to not necessarily have to confess my elephant for me, even though she hinted very strongly and said, are you happy now? <laughs> you thought it was going to be $14. It was 12 and now you're all happy. I'm glad that $2 really did it for you. <laughs> but she let me come to my own conclusion. In fact, you know what? By the way that she handled it with such grace, it accelerated the conviction of God in my own heart. <laughs> Because when you start heaping kindness upon someone who really doesn't deserve it, it just, I can't take this anymore. Just be too nice. I'm sorry, right here in the parking lot. I'm sorry. I blew it. I feel terrible. And then about two, 20 minutes later on the way home, I just said, I just want to apologize again. Just stop apologizing. It's over. I forgive you. Just stop. Just stop. <laughs> Amazing godly wife. I want you to be candid. I want you to be courageous. You know, next week, we're going to talk about you know, elephants that couples avoid. We're going to talk about elephants that parents avoid. We're going to talk about elephants that men avoid and elephants that women avoid. And I realize by talking about the elephants, we're kind of trying to disarm some of that power that it has, but it starts with you and I being candid and courageous, being honest. Would you bow your head with me just for a moment as we close together this morning? I'm going to invite our worship team to come. In just a moment, we're going to sing one last song together and our prayer team will come and we'll give you a chance. But here, here's, here's where I want to leave you this morning. just in this moment of reflection. And the reason I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes is because I just want you to be able to connect with Jesus. I want you to hear very close, carefully with him right now. Confession, being honest, admitting things is where lots of great things begin in the Bible. It's where actually a relationship with Jesus begins. It has to begin with honest, healthy confession. And the great news that we have is, is, is two things. That Paul, one thing that Paul writes about, one thing that John writes about. Paul says if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just. He forgives us of our sins. Friend, this morning you might have one of two things you need to confess to God. You may need to confess about some sin areas of your life that you've been trying to keep secret. Those habits, those addictions, those guilty pleasures call them whenever they want they don't have any place in the life of the believer and they will drag you down I want you to know that God already knows you're not going to surprise him with new information but the step to your healing and your recovery has to begin with you saying I confess it, I admit it, I own it and you have to just be honest with yourself and with God about that sometimes we need to confess we've used the word elephant but just those problems that we're pretending they're not existing just be real God it is what it is I'm really struggling I have a problem my family has a problem I personally have a problem I've got a problem with my parents the way I was raised I've got a problem with an ex as I'm recovering from things I've got a problem being by myself I've got a problem in my loneliness I've got, I've got all kinds of problems so in this moment just in your seat. I just want you to be very honest with God and let Him shine the floodlight into your heart. Here's the question I have for you. What do you need to confess to God this morning? What do you need to confess? You might say, I need to confess that Jesus is Lord and that He has control of my life. I need to begin a relationship with Him. So what you do is you just pray that simple prayer we prayed earlier in the service. 
You pray that prayer. You say, Jesus, I want to begin a relationship with you. I do not have a personal relationship with you. So I confess that you are now my Lord and I believe in my heart that you're not dead in a tomb somewhere, that you're alive today. And now that upon my invitation, you are living inside of me and I leave behind me my sins. I leave behind me the life of me being in charge. And I look in front of me to this moment right now and I say, I want you to be in charge, for you to be my Lord, for you to be the one who saves me. And I will follow you all the days of my life. I want to be the person that you've called me to be. You might also say, you know what, I've just got elephants. I've got an elephant. I've got a secret. I've got a problem. I've got an issue. I've been trying to pretend like I don't have it, but I do. You might have, you might have watched that video today and said, I have nothing to do. That's not my story. So put that story out and put yours in there. And I want to ask you, are there things in your life you're trying to control or hoping that they'll work themselves out, but you're not dealing with it because for whatever reason, you're scared. You don't want to deal with it. You don't feel like it. Today, I urge you, don't let that elephant get any bigger. There is safety in the arms of Jesus. There is help and power for you to move forward from that. But you must acknowledge it so that you can deal with it, have grace for it, heal from it, and move forward from it. As long as you let that thing just stay as a part of your life you're trying to control, you're telling God hands off. Can you just be courageous enough right there in your seat? You can do it silently in your spirit towards God. You can whisper it to Jesus. All over this room, I want you to just be honest. I want you to just confess that to God. Just confess it. God, I admit I have, a tr- I have struggles with narcissism and being controlling. I admit I've got a bad attitude. I admit that I, that I get really moody unfairly with people. Whatever it is that sounds to you, I admit that I'm holding some grudges. Your own elephants. I admit that there's people that have hurt me in the past and I'm still holding on to that. I admit it. I'm trying to control it. I'm trying to manage it. I'm hoping it just goes away and it doesn't. And today, I want to accelerate that process and I confess it to you. Jesus, all the room, I pray you start to release healing and breakthroughs. That the power of the elephant in people's lives just starts to diminish. And the moment they confess, those chains are broken. I pray you just minister grace and healing to our people right now all over this room. 